0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case through the trial and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin continued his look at the conditional witness examination of Nick Chaven and reviewed the significance of the examinations of Miriam Barnes, Linda Obst, and Emily and Stuart Altman. On this episode, John continues to guide us through the conditional witness examinations, roughly in the chronological order that they happen. Among the testimonies we discuss are Susan Berman's ex-husband, Paul Kaufman, apartment building manager, Karen Minitello, Durst assault victim, Peter Schwartz, and several of the witnesses to whom Susan Berman acknowledged providing Robert Durst with an alibi for the murder of his wife, Kathy. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
0: A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. If there are moments where the audio is unclear, I will try to repeat what was said. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit parts of the trial that John Lewin is talking about, at the end of this episode, I will identify episodes from Jury Duty that cover sections of the case that Lewin references. Lastly, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. So
1: the next set of witnesses that you called in terms of these conditional witness examinations were Peter Schwartz, Paul Kaufman, Richard Markey. There's also James Harney, Steven Silverman, Robert Curtis, and Robin Morse. These are the group before you got to Michael Strzok. Was there anybody in there that you felt was particularly important, or was it all part of putting together the building blocks of the case. Well, Paul Kaufman was important because he didn't want to testify. And he was a guy who literally admitted that I will only tell you information, I will only tell you the truth when I know that you've got me and I can't lie. And Paul Kaufman's deal was he didn't want to testify to damaging statements Susan had made about Bob Durst because he didn't want to be involved. So I wanted to get him. He was so up and down that I wanted to definitely get him absolutely, on the record, documented where I got him. The rest of the witnesses were people that we wanted to make sure that we were able to get their testimony down. And we basically decided, as I said before, that the conditional examinations were to our advantage. We were going to conditionally examine everybody that we could because... I believed that very likely we were going to end up being able to get stipulations to use the conditional examination testimony instead of trial. In addition, because you never know what's going to happen, what if somebody gets hit by a bus? So anybody that had any importance, we tried to conditionally examine because we wanted to make sure we didn't lose them. And then we thought, you know, likely we're going to be able to use this instead of testimony at trial. Right. And so that group that I just mentioned in the run-up to Michael Strzok, why don't we just go through each of them and their significance and what you were able to lock in, all right? Let's start with, of course, Peter Schwartz. Was there anything particularly memorable to you or critical to you about Schwartz's testimony? Yeah, Peter Schwartz was very important for the timeline with Kathy. He also demonstrated just Bob's incredible violence, which was an example of domestic violence, Bob coming in and attacking him, kicking him in the face, simply because he was sitting on the floor with Bob's wife. When Peter's own girlfriend was also there, and Bob's coming in and kicking him in the face so violently, it really demonstrated how Bob was attempting the domestic violence in the relationship, which was very important. It also had a, an added benefit of kind of showing that Bob is, say, he's not what he appears to be. And by the way, that is probably an example of what happened with Kathy. I don't think that Bob got up that morning and decided he was going to kill Kathy. I think Kathy came home, they got into an argument, and she said something or did something where Bob exploded just like he did with Peter Schwartz. Peter Schwartz was also important because, remember, it's the call from Peter Schwartz on the 31st that took place at Gilberta's where Kathy is learning that Peter Schwartz is not going to pursue his civil suit with Bob that set into motion her anger and likely led to the argument when she got home. So he was very important, and he also didn't want to testify, so I wanted to get him locked in you know, as quickly and as completely as we could.
0: What was critical about Kaufman?
1: Well, Paul Kaufman laid out some of the timeline, but also Susan had said to him that Bob had killed Kathy. So he was another one that helped on the whole issue of Susan's forfeiture by wrongdoing statements. So that's the biggest thing that he offered. Linda Obst was another person who had been told by Susan that she provided an alibi for Bob. Was there anything else significant about Ms. Oates' testimony besides the fact that she handled the defense cross-examination particularly well? Well, one of the things about all these witnesses and one of the things that I was mystified about from the start is that the defense never had a clear idea, all through trial, of what their defense was with respect to the statement Susan made. They couldn't decide whether the witnesses were lying, the witnesses were mistaken, or if the witnesses were completely truthful and Susan was lying when she said it. Those are three mutually exclusive possibilities. Only one of those three, if any, can be true. Now, the fourth possibility is that the witnesses aren't mistaken or lying because that's what Susan told them and that Susan wasn't lying when she said it. That's the fourth possibility, and that's what I believe and the jury believed occurred. But so, in putting these witnesses on, the defense would argue all three of these inconsistent theories. And I knew that it wasn't going to work. There's no way that all of these people could be mistaken. Well, many of these people... Not only is the idea that they're all going to be mistaken in the same way, the stories were always slightly different. And and some of these witnesses did not know each other, and none of them have ever discussed it. So the idea that they all happened to come up with the same story accidentally made zero sense. Number two, the issue of the witnesses are lying. Well, if you're lying then that means that you are conveying this information because you want to somehow inject yourself into this case, et cetera. Linda Oakes was hugely important because it was the direct opposite. She's extremely accomplished. She doesn't want anything to do with this case. She did everything she could do to not ever talk to me. Everyone she talked to kept telling her, you need to call Lewin and tell him what you know, and she didn't like it. Ryan Ehrlich told her. Her lawyer told her, Andrew Jarecki told her, and she didn't want to do it because that's not what she wanted to hear. So Linda was important because she was so articulate, so smart, you know, so good on the stand. One thing that's very interesting, and the example I like to give, is that in cross-examination, oftentimes, there's a snake and there's a bunny. The snake is usually the lawyer and the bunny is the witness, and the bunny is unsuspecting, and the snake comes in there and just periodically bites and injects venom into the witness, kills him, kills the bunny. DeGuerin started his cross-examination with Linda Obst, thinking that he was the snake and she was the bunny, and I don't know if he ever realized it, but... um, He got bit about 17 times, she destroyed him. He would keep going in and she would bite him again. There was nothing left of him at the end of that cross.
2: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
0: We continue my conversation with John Lewin as he offers his thoughts on the conditional examinations of several witnesses who offered brief but consequential testimonies, including Richard Markey, Stephen Silverman, James Harney, Robert Curtis, and Robin Morse.
1: In that group of Markey, James Harney, Stephen Silverman, Robert Curtis, Robin Morse, is there anybody in there that you want to single out, talk about? Oh, I mean... Very briefly, Martin was the timeline. He's the last person to see her alive. He explained what time she got back, and that was really important. And he also, you know, goes to what was her demeanor and attitude, The last, you know, the last person to see her alive. Curtis and who else did you name? Harney, Silverman, and Morse. So um, Curtis was simply the chain of custody on the cadaver note. Harney was extremely important because Harney responded. He ended up interviewing Bob and he was part of the minimal investigation. New York state police did. It was important to make sure that the jury would understand that it wasn't a New York state police case. It was an NYPD case and they didn't really do an investigation. And that wasn't, Harney did exactly what he was supposed to do. So he was very important. Um, Robin Morris was, a, was another good friend of Susan. She's a forfeiture by wrongdoing statement, so we definitely you know wanted her out there.
0: Lewin explained this in great depth in Episode 3 of this jury duty season. But to refresh your memories, his reference to the forfeiture by wrongdoing exception to the hearsay rule is related to Susan Berman's statements to others about her providing an alibi to Robert Durst. Those statements were deemed admissible as evidence against Durst because someone who intentionally or wrongfully makes the declarant unavailable to testify forfeits their constitutional right of confrontation. Lewin expands on his earlier explanation by explaining the uniqueness of forfeiture by wrongdoing as an exception to the hearsay rule.
1: Every other hearsay exception has a trustworthiness prong. So in other words, Knowledge is out to be an exception, but then you have to look at and say, well, is the statement trustworthy? Forced by wrongdoing does not have that requirement, and it's very simple. In order to find forced by wrongdoing, the judge has to find, number one, that the defendant killed the victim, and number two, that they killed the victim to prevent them from becoming a witness. Now, it's very problematic because the standard of preponderance of the evidence is actually a higher standard, then you have to prove at preliminary hearing. It's lower than trial, but but higher than at preliminary hearing. So if you're asking a judge to make this finding, and if it's, especially if it's before preliminary hearing, then basically the judge is finding before you start that he's gonna hold the defendant to answer. So Judge Wyndham didn't want to do this for understandable reasons. However, and in fact He kept putting off the ruling, and we kept pushing, and eventually he came back and he said, well, listen, I don't actually need to make this ruling because I can admit the evidence that Susan said, not for the truth of the matter asserted, but as circumstantial evidence. The idea would be that even if what Susan was saying wasn't true, it would still have given Bob a reason to kill her. And although that is correct, it's much stronger evidence if it comes in for the truth and matter asserted. And I had to push back and basically say to the judge, hey, judge, it's not your role to decide what evidence I'm going to put in. It's your role to simply say I'm offering this evidence and either it meets the standard or it doesn't. And we're bringing it in for under forfeiture by wrongdoing. So eventually he had to make that ruling. That was incredibly important. And it was absolutely the right ruling. It's not even debatable. Once a judge decides that the exception applies, that, hey, there's preponderance of the evidence demonstrating that you killed the witness and that you killed them to prevent them from being a witness, once they decide that, then everything the witness says that is relevant comes in, and the defense cannot argue that it's not trustworthy. So that was a key ruling by the judge. The defense you know, really didn't address it properly because they never even at the end of the trial had a cohesive and consistent theory of whether, are the witnesses mistaken? Meaning, you know, they are, uh, their memories are wrong and that's where Dr. Loftus' testimony would apply. Are the witnesses lying? If the witnesses are lying, Dr. Loftus is irrelevant. Or are the witnesses neither lying nor mistaken? Susan was lying when she told them that. They argued all three.
0: Lewin here refers to the testimony of defense memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. We'll explore that testimony in a later episode. Next, I prompt John about two witnesses whom he had yet to cover. It bears clarifying that Robert Curtis's testimony related to the cadaver note mailed to the Beverly Hills Police Department to alert them to Susan's corpse, which Robert Durst would for years deny having written only to acknowledge writing it on the eve of the trial. So
1: the other two witnesses were Robert Curtis and Steven Silverman. So the original detective who had gotten the note, he was dead well before we ever started this case. So we had to use the secretary who got the note, originally gave it to the detective, and we had to use Curtis who got the note from the detective. And then Silverman. Silverman was important because he explained who Susan was. He also was important to me. Because his position was that, hey, listen, although Susan was extremely loyal, she's the last person you would want to have a secret. And anybody who knew Susan would know that. That became important in explaining why it was that Bob had to kill her. Because once Susan told Bob that she was going to talk to the police, Bob knew that it's coming out. Okay, moving on to the next witness that was called in a conditional witness examination was Karen Minutello. So Karen Minutello was a very important witness. And the reason that she was so important was she was the basically the manager at East 86th Street where Kathy was living. She gave us several things. Number one, Bob wasn't living there, and Kathy was. Number two, Kathy was in the process of trying to leave Bob and saying that she wanted to leave. She mentioned some domestic violence, if I remember, that Kathy had mentioned. And most importantly, the week that Kathy disappeared, the trash chutes at East 86th Street got jammed. And they traced it back up. And basically, all, Bob had thrown away all of Kathy's stuff, including her medical books, which Karen Minatello personally saw. And I want to say that she might have been one of the witnesses, I can't remember who talked about like her husband dying and how she couldn't get herself to get rid of his stuff for X amount of time? So she was devastating in that Bob is saying his wife disappears, and the way that I argued it, which I think is a is an effective way to argue it, is that there are you have the stages of grief: anger, denial, uh, you know, bargaining, you know, acceptance, whatever they are. And my position was, hey, Bob went straight from denial to acceptance in about an hour okay so his wife disappears he's like okay she's not coming back time to get rid of her shit it's not how people work the reason that he didn't engage in the other stage of grief is one he wasn't in a stage of grief and two he didn't need to deny to be angry to bargain because he killed her and he knew she was dead he knew she wasn't coming back and that's what he wanted so karen was devastating yeah I'll say, especially when you talk to jurors, as I've done, that was a killer witness. You know, it's very interesting, Kerry, and I've had this conversation with so many people, is that the great thing about circumstantial cases is that I might have 100 pieces of evidence, right? I might say, you know, piece number eight is huge for me. I don't really think that much of piece number six. You might go, you know what? Wow, piece number six, that's the thing for me. I don't really care about piece number eight. When jurors go back and deliberate, they don't have to agree on the importance of each piece of evidence. They just have to come to a collective decision on what happened. So I will always argue, hey, listen, if piece six is a big deal to you, great. Maybe it's piece eight. Maybe it's piece 14. And it has been shown, even with lawyers in the case. I'll just give you a perfect example. Kill them all, of course, is not that big a deal to me in this case. It's a big deal that Bob said it, but Bob says so much shit that there are enough ways to kind of minimize that importance. There are 20 pieces of evidence more important than that, including the most damaging thing he says in the bathroom is before the door even closes, he says, there is your car. That to me was far more inculpatory and damaging. Ricky Ring. Oh, Ricky Ring was extremely, in my opinion, important. Now, she was somebody that we found out about very late because, you know, I would go through every single page of discovery of anything in this case, anything I could find, and then I'd go locate a witness. So I can't remember how it was that I came across Ricky Ring, but I came across Ricky Ring and I wanted to interview her. And Ricky Ring was a real insight into Susan. So Susan never told Ricky Ring anything even though they were very close. And the reason Susan never told Ricky Ring anything is because Ricky Ring had an extremely strong personality, which you could see when she testified. And Ricky made it very clear that had Susan told her anything directly, she would have made Susan go to the police about it. So the defense tried to cast these different people, and Susan did, if you recall, Susan said enough to Ricky Ring where Ricky was able to hey, don't you tell me another word, you know, I'm going to whatever. So Ricky Ring knew enough. And the defense, again, their defense from the start was, well, her versions to these eight to ten people about what she did and what Bob did are not the same. And that's true. And they try to make that out as that's evidence that Susan never said them. What they left out and what the jury understood was that they were different Because Susan gave different versions, depending on who she was talking to, because she might not mention it at all, or she might really shade it, or she might be much more honest about it. That was not because the story didn't happen. It was because Susan was very choosy about who she told and what she told them. So Ricky Ring brought that out, brought a lot of stuff out about Susan's personality, little things, just like with... Steve Silverman about Susan talking about diarrhea, etc., little things. And again, I want to go back to what I said before. Do I think that the stories about Susan talking about bodily functions, do I think that's a huge deal? I don't. That'd be like, you know, number 3,000 on the evidence. But I will tell you, there were a couple of jurors who were like, wow, that really impacted me. That goes to the point that I was trying to make. It's not just circumstantial cases. It's any case with a lot of evidence. As a trial lawyer, Don't get caught up in only emphasizing the pieces that you think are important. Now, you don't want to argue things that are not important and be disingenuous. And you certainly don't have to get up there if you don't think so and say, hey, this point is crucial. But if you put it in there, even if you don't think it's that important, the jurors that do will remember it. And so that's what happened with Ricky Rainey.
0: That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin takes us on a deep dive into the testimony of Detective Michael Strzok, who was the first investigator into the disappearance of Kathy Durst. Lewin will also explore the story behind Eddie Lopez, the elevator operator at Kathy Durst's apartment, who claimed to see her leaving after her disappearance. Also, you can find our in-depth coverage of the significant events that John Lewin covers in this episode in the following installments of the Jury Duty podcast. Peter Schwartz's testimony is covered in season 2 bonus episode 2. The questioning of James Harney and Karen Minatello can be found in season 2 episode 6 and the examinations of Linda Opst, Ricky Ring, and Steven Silverman appear in season 2 episode 7. We also did a deep dive into juror reaction to the testimonies of Paul Kaufman and Richard Markey in season 2 bonus episode 22. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hold up. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracom. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor
1: Speaks.